I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. Thank you for joining us on Crime Scene today on IR Lone Star Radio in Conroe, also on pretty much every podcast that you can find <laughs> out there. So we're coming back. Uh, we have Paul Haas with us. Uh, Leslie was unable to join us, had some uh, previous engagements she needed to make. So I'm coming back from the IAI uh, conference in Reno, uh, which is the International Association for Identification. It's an international crime scene conference. Uh, we had uh, close to about 1,400 people in attendance. It's uh, people from all sorts of uh, disciplines and forensics. And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things learned there and just some uh, different topics. We do have a, a question from one of our listeners uh, we'll tackle. And uh, so to get into it, uh, some of the things that uh, found there, uh, there's another podcast that I'll uh, do a shout out to is Double Loop Podcast with Eric Ray and uh, Glenn Landenberg, which they're both fingerprint examiners, and they created a podcast probably about a year ago that focuses on the fingerprint discipline. And uh, they were at uh, the II, got to meet with them, some great guys and uh, experts in their field. They also gave a couple of uh, different lectures and things. Uh, the way that the uh, conferences broke up is you have uh, workshops that you pay extra for, and those are anywhere between uh, four hours, eight hours of training that you go through for the uh, during the week, and then they also have uh, different uh, lectures that are going on that some are anywhere from 15 minutes to four hours long oh, wow. on the different disciplines and stuff, and that's in forensic art, fingerprint, DNA, forensic photography, and uh, just uh, crime scene in general or criminal investigation in general. So it's great to uh, meet a lot of those people. Uh, one of the upcoming shows that we're going to have, I was able to interview Everett Baxter Jr. from Oklahoma State Police, and he uh, is an expert on using drone technology uh, in reference to crime scenes. So we sat down and we talked about uh, uh, what the public needs. Obviously, there are new regulations right. uh, on using a drone and uh, different licensing that uh, the public asks, you know, when can I fly and those type of things. So we addressed some of that along with there's extra uh, requirements. If you're a government agency and you would like to use a drone, obviously the a lot more restrictions on what you can use them for. The public has great concern uh, <laughs> on us, uh, you know, their uh, freedom and uh, what we would be using that for, and possibly privacy violating issues. their privacy yeah. issues and such. So uh, we talked about that, but then we got into the um, technology of it and how that's advanced. I know that uh, here in Montgomery County, we got in a little early on mm -hmm. the drone thing and. Uh, we uh, spent a lot of money to, to use this technology, and that uh, has advanced and certainly come down in price. And, and some of the drones that he was speaking of using are uh, many of the drones that you can buy at uh, Best Buy. And, really? And uh, those things that they've become so advanced that uh, you can get a drone to uh, do this uh, for uh, pretty much around that you know $1,500 range, $2,000 range, which is certainly uh, in the range of even smaller police departments. So Right. Um, it beats half a million dollars any day does. of the week. It does. <laughs> uh, and it, it uh, requires just the one operator where I know we got in, it required, I think, three people right. know, operating the drone. You, you had your pilot, you had your, your observation officer, you had somebody else that did some other line of sight observations. So this uh, technology also, so we have used the uh, Leica scanner. This is not dismissing the 360 scanners or the total station, but... Mm -hmm. You can use the drone uh, to take multiple photos at different heights, and then it takes those and it basically creates this 3D image of your scene. Uh, on average, from some of the scenes he was describing, uh, you're able to do it in probably about 30 minutes or so. And, of course, wow. we're, we're speaking more of some outdoor scenes, right? Right. Um, and in this case, he had showed one in which it was an uh, officer-involved shooting that they had worked in Oklahoma uh, on the freeway, uh, so certainly for... Uh, outdoor scenes and for um, accident reconstruction, it was great. They uh, uh, had flown around, got the 3D image, and then after putting that into uh, the program, and on, like I said, on average, it was somewhere uh, about 30 minutes to fly. It ended up with anywhere between 500 to 900 photos that uh, the drone would take and then mesh together. So 
obviously with that type of footage, that type of uh, um, computer program is going to be labor intensive on the computer. You right. have to have a, a pretty high end uh, computer to do that. And it would stitch it together. And then in the next phase, you could actually take that and put on VR goggles and basically walk through the scene as if you were there. So uh, I know we've seen that uh, with uh, using the 360 scan. The Leica uh, scan, yeah. That, that we've had for a few years and stuff. But uh, And, the, and a, the bonus that the Leica scan will have for you is they have the ability to do the measurements in right. addition to the photos. But I think for court purposes, uh, the, the jury prefers the visual to all the technical aspects. Well, and the, the drone also does measurements. So you basically put really? known, known uh, measurements in there, and then from that, because it's basically using the GPS signal and GPS okay. coordinates to, uh, to take those. So uh, that was interesting, and we'll have uh, him on. We did a, a recording while we were there and talked to him, so uh, we'll have that coming up uh, talking about the drones. Uh, met with a latent print examiner, Karen Oswald, from Suffolk County uh, in New York, and she had a very interesting one that she wanted to share uh, with detectives. And that's one that uh, uh, we'll also, I sat down and spoke with her. Um, it was not as, as long of an interview, mm -hmm. so we'll probably put that just on our website and uh, on our uh, podcast to find. But uh, so what she wanted to share with detectives, she had a unique case that uh, the detective, just being very astute, had, uh, it was a sexual assault of a child case. Uh, that she had worked, and the uh, suspect or the perpetrator in the case actually had taken a photo uh, of this child, um, and he was forcing her uh, to hold his genitalia, okay? And in forcing her to do so, you could see his hand in the photograph. Okay. So the detective um, took this photograph to his latent print examiner and said, can you get an identification off of uh, this is photo. And it's something she hadn't done before, uh, but due to the advancement in cameras, the cell phones, mm -hmm. uh, and the resolution has gotten so high that she was actually able to get an identifiable print off of this uh, cell phone photo. That is awesome. And so that opens up uh, so many avenues we talk about with Detectives and child crimes where we have those many cases we have photos and don't have a link as to who this is uh, Many times and I had brought up in our interview uh, With NECMIC, which is our National Center for Mission Exploited Children that they have a, a database that detectives can go through and just uh, The purpose behind is we have children that we haven't identified mm -hmm. that are victims and so there's a lot of uh, photos to look at that do we identify maybe a uh, an emblem icon is there something that uh, we identify as a local business that we can say what part of the country or what part of the world that this child's in so uh, taking that and thinking okay if there's anything of a, of a fingerprint that's close enough um, to use then uh, possibly, possibly just another avenue so that was some uh, new information that she had brought and just another idea that she wanted to share with detectives that if that's you're really working cool. those cases um, she had a couple of others uh, that um, apparently it's become um, a normal practice in uh, prostitution, human trafficking, those type of things that uh, they are paying with uh, gift cards. Uh, and so in using the Amazon gift cards and those type of mm -hmm. things, uh, again, uh, show me a picture of the number. And now you have, as most people hold a, a card, you have... Uh, their fingerprint or you, at least their finger in the photo that you can try to identify. So just another way of looking at it. And so we sat down and talked about that, and she was just uh, uh, very encouraging to try to get that out to detectives so that uh, they could think about that when looking at these photos and going through. Because, uh, you know, she said as we're doing the lecture, you know, what's the first thing uh, that the detective sees in the photo? Well, first thing we saw, of course, is the child. Right. And, uh, and the first thing that most ICAC or Internet Crimes Against Children would think of is, okay, uh, what's the IP address? How do we get the location? Staring right in front of you is the fingerprint uh, of the suspect to try to locate. Which identifies a person, not a machine being used. Right. Uh, which is always challenged with our ICAC. Is it, it'll get us to the Wi-Fi. It'll get us to mm -hmm. the house, but we got to find out who's behind the keyboard. That's exactly it. So uh, another uh, person who I spoke to, actually I met um, many from this agency. It was uh, from South Korea. Uh, they have a Korean National Police Agency. So uh, the there is one a police agency in all of South Korea. Uh, 
so I spoke to two of um, their superintendents there, uh, which was uh, Jong Su Wu and Wu Hoon, uh, which presented a poster. One of the things that you can do at the II conference, if you do not want to uh, present, meaning uh, present a lecture or whatever, then uh, there's also another category where um, if you've ever uh, seen graduate school or doctor schools where they have to prepare posters mm -hmm. uh, on whatever topic that they are studying and things. That's very similar. So uh, it's different topics in um, in crime scene that they're putting out. And what they had done, uh, also related to fingerprints, was trying to get fingerprints off of a glass bottle or off of a plastic bottle was, uh, obviously it's challenging with the contrast, right? right? With the reflective nature that it is. So they put uh, water in the bottle, added a uh, small amount of detergent, uh, which basically would allow it to cloud up, uh, and then shine a light uh, through it to basically illuminate the bottle. And by doing so, uh, made the print stand out to create the contrast. So, so basically made the liquid opaque and then highlighted the print. Right. So did, did they have any, any studies done or anything to talk about the effect on any potential DNA? when doing that? On, now, you're using detergent, so I want to make sure it's not something, obviously, that... that well, now, they're, they're doing it on the inside of the bottle, and obviously the fingerprint they're taking is on the outside. Right, so, but I'm just assuming you don't want to get it out there and... No, and obviously, I would imagine if it went over the print, you'd have other <laughs> issues other than DNA. You're going exactly. to be destroying the, the ridges and everything else. Uh, and speaking of, of ridges, one of the um, uh, one of the last ones I'll talk about as far as uh, presenters that... Uh, I spoke with was, uh, I'll probably mess his name up, Ion Truta from Romania, uh, but he actually now works for the Boston Police Department. So he's a criminalist and, uh, and one of their fingerprint examiners, shoe examiners, and uh, uh, again, uh, many uh, aspects of the lab. But so what he had to, or what he presented on was if you have a patrol officer who is taking a photograph of a fingerprint, uh, but there is no scale in it. He forgot to put a ruler or whatever, okay? okay? And obviously, uh, you have to have that ruler so that we can know the exact size of the print, so we can right. print it out, we can put it into APHIS for comparison and possibly get a hit or not. So, um, so he went through a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, one, <clears throat> obviously, is if we can identify something in the photo, that uh, we can put a known sample to, because uh, if we know the area it was lifted, I know that we've used this in some reconstructions here in Montgomery County where uh, we had either a door frame, we mm -hmm. had a window frame, something that was known that we could go back, take a measurement, and then calculate from that what our true measurement was. Uh, the third was actually to count the ridges uh, of the fingerprint, and uh, based on some research and stuff that... Uh, and there are some calculations that you add, but basically counting about nine ridges and by those nine ridges, uh, putting it into a program such as Photoshop to uh, allow for a certain amount of measurement and then to adjust that measurement by 10% to 20% and on the backside, negative 10, negative 20. And between those five measurements uh, that uh, they've been able to get a hit. Oh, wow. And if... If it was outside of those, that they were not able to get a hit, but most likely it was not in the database is what they found. So, um, and <clears throat> if you go to uh, crimescenetoday.com uh, and if uh, you click on our Facebook or on our Twitter, uh, there are links uh, that uh, he allowed. So it actually has his PowerPoint, his presentation. It shows you how to do this in Photoshop. Uh, so if you're interested in, in seeing what he was demonstrating, what he was doing, those are on our uh, Twitter and Facebook feeds. So, of course, one of the big things that at any conference is always the exhibitors, what new technology is coming <laughs> in, everybody selling their products and stuff. And uh, this was no different. They had uh, numerous products uh, to check out. Uh, it appeared that most uh, focused on uh, fingerprints, which... Uh, for those that don't know, the IAI, that was its discipline foundation. Right. Obviously, it's been around the longest. It's, it's what we've used the longest. So <clears throat> it's, it's something that um, they certainly focus on there. And, uh, but there are new technologies with it. So a couple of things that seem to be, I say up and coming, uh, but I think it's more of improving on, 
is uh, we have what we call an ALS, which is our alternative light source. And there is a change between us using bulb versus laser. Um, okay. And the idea behind a lot of these uh, different technologies, so uh, for those that uh, don't understand what the ALS does or what it is, is that we have a visible light spectrum between 400 and 700. And on that light spectrum, combining different wavelengths, uh, when you uh, are to shine that light source on a print and put what we call a barrier filter, which basically you're looking through yellow, orange, red, mm -hmm. those type of things, it actually will make the print or semen or urine visible where by the naked eye it was not. So uh, combining those together uh, create that. And in the past, we have used a bulb uh, type of light along with these barrier filters. And uh, we still do that. They've improved on those lights. Now they become portable. In the past, they used to be a $40,000 machine that right. sat in the crime lab that most people didn't have access to and certainly was not coming to a scene. Now uh, they come in a Pelican case that you can carry to the scene with you, which uh, assists in locating evidence that you couldn't find before, uh, fibers, fabrics, those type of things. So uh, along with where the semen is to take the sample of. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, it, it's been a great benefit being portable, uh, but what they have done now is they've increased the power of these so that um, many items you're able to see the prints and things uh, without treating them first, okay? without actually okay. having a chemical type of uh, processing involved, um, which I was able to speak to Les briefly about that as I came back, and, and she had said that this is that's really not something new in in the field. And uh, for those that are unaware, uh, Les, who's one of the co-hosts, is our fingerprint examiner. She's an expert in her field. Uh, she had explained that, obviously, uh, you know, we always uh, look at something first before we ever process it. We're always photographing it before, and, and um, this is no different. But what seems to be different is the amount or the level of intensity that these lights are. So... Uh, I know that uh, another uh, product, uh, which was uh, Arrowhead Forensic, allowed us at the Texas division of the IEI uh, to sit down in a lecture and talk about this exact thing. Uh, and we recorded that lecture and we recorded the, um, the actual laser and the bulb, <clears throat> the difference between the two. And uh, that recording is on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. So go to Crime Scene Today, click on YouTube, you'll see uh, Arrowhead's uh, laser and, and bulb. Uh, thing and uh, it's uh, you can see the big difference uh, between using the bulb, using the laser to identify these materials. The laser obviously is way more intense, right? It just glows and, and comes out at you. The issue is, of course, safety. Uh, you have to have where we're dealing with bulbs, you have uh, uh, barrier filters or goggles that are very similar to. Uh, what you would think is uh, the plastic shooting goggles. Tinted sunglasses or, right, or shooting. Yes. sits over your glasses. Uh, the, the goggles that you would need for the laser is a, a class four. It's a class four laser. You have to have uh, special goggles to protect your eyes. So it's, it's powerful. So you use iPro for shooting and for, for yes. identification. So it's, um, but that was neat. And that seems to be where things are going. We saw... Um, uh, Idemia was there, which is a uh, big biometrics company. Uh, it is sort of the behind the scenes, pretty much things we're already using mm -hmm. uh, in APHIS in our booking procedures and all that. That's sort of the uh, computer company, the technology that's that's driving behind many of these. And one thing that I saw there that was uh, uh, pretty interesting was, uh, I guess, for the booking process, if you think about... Uh, if you were to have your cell phone, it's about the size of your cell phone, and then think of another cell phone sitting about an inch above that. So you have about an inch between. Okay. Uh, and then waving your hand through there about at the speed that you would just wave at somebody. In that process, it was able to capture uh, all your prints. So uh, the, wow. the booking process of you actually pressing, rolling, whatever, uh, it was literally just a wave of the hand. It had all the prints on each side and... So that was interesting. That's where things are sort of heading with speed and, and capture. Yeah. Uh, the uh, facial recognition, of course, is always improving. Uh, it seems to <laughs> and, scare and causing some. issues. Yes, um, and, and they did. I mean, they they showed some of the technologies there where 
obviously there's not a known database that it's hitting, but it's just showing the technology. And, and so as people are walking through uh, the showroom and, and all this, uh, it's, it's identifying where people are. I mean, it's, it's showing faces. So you have squares around each of the faces and it's picking them out. There's, you know, hundreds at a time. And, and the idea behind this is obviously um, as we progress in this, as we get a database together and uh, if we're looking at a database of criminals, database of terrorists, database of people that we need to identify, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we'll use the example here of uh, one of our biggest events that we have uh, is the Ironman that right. we have to prepare for, that there's numerous places to protect. You know, as uh, uh, we're trying to always avoid things like the Boston bombing and, and right. uh, uh, terrorist attacks. So uh, setting up these type of cameras uh, to identify everybody who's walking around and in a split second know that this is a person that, uh, you know, someone we need to look at, someone that's been handled for this, someone who's made threats in the past, a known person. Or just a person of interest in something um, like that, yeah. So uh, that technology seems to be there. I think what's really not there yet is the database. You know, and that's really uh, where the argument or where the talk comes in of, as we said before, our, our privacy issues, our freedoms and stuff is... Um, you know, we have a database that pulls from our driver's license, so mm-hmm. that's one database. We have a database that will pull from booking photos. Okay? Right. Uh, most people don't have any issue with the fact of us using booking photos. They know why they were there. <laughs> uh, but some do have issue with, I've committed no crime. I don't need to be in any database to be searched. And, um, and again, I think it's that conversation that we have um, hours on alone of privacy versus security and do you give up privacy for some security and, and those things. And, and you always will. I mean, you can't have the protection without giving some of that up. But the, the facial recognition uh, has uh, gotten big. Uh, I know that there's a, a new technology that just, um, they were in beta testing, and I know they just released. I know that they uh, just reached out to us as far as purchasing it. We had tried it out for them, and it is a another facial recognition. Uh, but it searches... Again, which you've already made public on your own, and that's the Internet. Mm-hmm. So by you posting your photos and by you uh, putting things out there and, and sharing that stuff uh, and it being on the Internet, uh, it searches against the Internet. And uh, we have used it already to solve some cases because you don't have to have the person. We can aim it at a photo uh, of somebody and uh, try to identify them that way, see what they're involved in. Uh, we've been able... You know, now video, it would have to be pretty clear, right? I mean, we, right. we get some pretty degraded video. And, and distance is usually yeah. killer on video. So, it, you know, we have to have a good shot. But um, checking the Internet is great. So is I it mean, searching against, like, Google Images or, or? I'm not sure what algorithm and which ones it hits. I know that uh, when we've done the searches, we've gotten things back uh, from from websites, I mean, not like just Facebook, Instagram, but I mean from websites that posted that picture, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, certainly Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter accounts, and, and those that we would like expect search against from. crime scene today or something like that, right. where our, our, your face might be on it. Right. So interesting. That, so it, it pulls that stuff up. So um, the facial recognition is is huge. That's improving. I was actually very surprised at the II that there were no. Uh, DNA vendors, and I guess I should clarify, no one was selling DNA. It was, uh, <laughs> it was more the fact of the DNA processing labs that are normally at these. I know that uh, uh, you had attended the International Homicide Conference. Yes. and uh, we, the, had, we had several of them. You had Parabon there. You had uh, Bodhi Technologies. So, and that seemed to be on, is Sorensen still around? Are they, they, they are still around. We still use them from time to time, but they weren't at this conference that I saw. I mean, those are the three big names that we yes. usually hear. That's, right? that's the ones you typically hear, the labs uh, that have been made popular and, of course, are approved through DPS and, and the feds. And uh, just to clarify, you know, the, these are all private labs, and the reason that we end up having to go to private labs is um, it's a time frame. Type Absolutely. Deal. That's all it is when... Uh, we send in DNA to our state lab. We're here in Texas. Uh, send it to DPS. Um, it can take anywhere between six months to three years. Absolutely. Uh, I've had, and, and uh, just to clarify, they don't do, uh, or for the most part, they do not do property crimes. Right. So we're not talking about that three-year being a burglary or something. All these are person's crimes. These are crimes, uh, usually violent crimes, that, since we're talking about DNA and stuff. Uh, but if we have a case that we need 
to have a rush on, uh, sometimes we have to pay for that. So we'll send it to a private lab. And I know in one case alone, I remember it was um, uh, a kidnapping of an elderly mm-hmm. woman, and she was uh, beaten uh, and left for dead. He thought he had killed her. Rolled her in a bla- uh, yeah, carpet, if I remember correctly. Left her for dead in a shed. Right. Uh, strong lady. She survived. Um, and we we needed to find him quick. Right. Uh, and so I think we spent... I think it was somewhere around fifty or sixty thousand dollars. It was fifty, yeah, to yeah. Uh, to try to get that, and and still that wasn't like fifty thousand. We find out the next day it was fifty. I think it was like seven or ten days. It, so it was a ten day turnaround. Yeah. I think we I think we got it right on the tenth day. So it's you know, but those are some avenues that we we have to go, and and obviously, uh, being government entities, we have to balance that versus our budget on how many times we do that. As much right. as we would love to do that for every single person, every single victim, uh, we obviously can't, and we have to balance that out. Uh, but, uh, and then we have the newer technologies in DNA that uh, deal with genealogy, and we've spoken mm-hmm. about that a little bit. Um, so, but they're not approved by DPS, so that's, it's, a, it's a tool, but we can't use it against CODIS and those type of things. For Gives us a direction to go, uh, maybe points us in a direction that we can take it to actually to the state labs with. So uh, we had a question uh, from one of our uh, listeners, and it says, okay, uh, I know absolutely nothing about forensics, but it seems to me that if someone thoroughly prepared themselves, they could leave behind no meaningful evidence to tie them to a crime. If a serial killer chose people at random in random locations and had no apparent MO, how would law enforcement go about stopping them? <laughs> you know, I think that's that's been the, the question for all times is what is the perfect crime? And the truth of the matter is there's not one. Um, I don't know that with technology today you could get away with the things that you used to. No, I, th- I think as far as, uh, you know, first off, um, uh, the planning, uh, you know, it, you know, we call it the CSI effect, mm-hmm. right? You know, that people watch crime scene shows and uh, they... Some believe that's real. Some acknowledge <laughs> that that it's a little far fetched, but they still they th- they feel there's some basis. There's some to basis it. that uh, uh, we expect this in our deal, <laughs> and in doing so, this is the training that they've had right. to try to uh, create the perfect crime. Right? How do you get mm-hmm. away with murder? And luckily for us, um, that's not how it works. And you know, it's. Uh, it's like the uh, probably the one that stands out the most. We talked about it in your case presentation mm-hmm. that we talked about, and that is, you know, how do you uh, how do you stage something? You know, how you commit a murder and you stage it to look like a suicide. Well, uh, luckily for us, they haven't seen hundreds of suicides like we have, and right? Therefore, they don't know what it looks like and what it's supposed to look like and what it's going to look like. So when we walk in, it's like a red flag and go, yeah, this, this something's is not, right. not right here. So, but to get back to to the question as far as planning and being prepared, uh, you can't. Um, you know, the fact if you wanted to go and do something, there's there's always the unknown. Okay, uh, how many crimes we heard where. Uh, they broke in and someone came home that was right. not intended. A witness came by. Someone drove by in their car. Uh, so your your license plate vibrated loose and fell off your car as you're leaving. I mean, there's there's so many things that you can't plan for. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, you know someone recognizes you buying tools, mm-hmm. duct tape, shovel, you know uh, those type of things. So um, those are some basic things. But then also you know. Um, Unlike on TV, uh, murder is a violent act, and humans will do everything in their power to not die. Absolutely. It, it is our inner being not to die. So they're going to put up a fight. And uh, in cases, it, it's not quick. It's not uh, like a lot of people believe. And no. uh, trying to kill someone takes a great deal of effort. And in doing so, again, your plan, as this perfect plan is, um, uh, you, I'm sure, did not plan on getting scratched, which left your DNA behind, Mm -hmm. that uh, somehow, in any way, shape, or form, you get cut. And if you're using a knife, uh, that can easily happen uh, in this violent rage and and otherwise that that you actually cut yourself. 
uh, or in the process of fighting uh, get cut by something, leaving your blood behind, leaving fabric behind. Uh, and along all of this, uh, unless you are such a psychopath in the fact that your pulse never gets above 60 mm-hmm. and you don't sweat and you have uh, totally covered that area, which is probably not the case uh, when you are right. being aggressive of that nature, you're sweating. And, and then aside from all that, it doesn't matter if you're at 60 pulse rate and <laughs> you're not sweating, you're shedding skin cells on a regular basis. Body right? hairs, you're shedding pieces of yourself everywhere you go. You know, it's got to the point as far as the sensitivity of DNA is something that we deal with as far as law enforcement crime scene is that uh, we have gotten to the point that, you know, in the past we didn't wear, we, we wore, well, in the past we didn't wear gloves. You know, but, <laughs> in a you know, long, distant past. <laughs> you know, but uh, then it was just common nature, we're wearing gloves. Well, then we're wearing booties, right, mm-hmm. on our feet, and we're wearing a mask so we're not breathing. And it's nearly gotten to the point that we're about to have to go into crime scenes with a Tyvek suit. A full Tyvek suit. Every single time you go in because of how sensitive DNA has gotten. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one thing that uh, they don't tell you when you when you sign up for homicide, at least in, in Texas, one of the things that we are required to do is our DNA has to be on file. If, yes. Uh, if you're part of a homicide unit, then uh, your DNA is on file with the state. And the sole purpose behind this is how sensitive DNA is, is that if uh, there is a mixture, there's something that's DNA, they can rule you out. Who were the detectives on scene? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then we can remove these DNA profiles uh, from this particular... And we've experienced that in our unit. I mean, we've had one case where we had a, an unidentified Hispanic male floating in, in one of our lakes here, and we were excited because about three years after his death, we got a DNA hit, and it turned out to be one of our CSI's DNA. And I looked at the photos. He's wearing gloves. He's wearing all his PPE. He's wearing all the right things. But at some point, his DNA uh, infected that sample. Yeah, so it's it's out there. It's obviously something we've experienced here. Yes. Um, so that's people that are being extremely careful not to do this. And, we, and know what to do. And we had a plan, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were planning not to get our DNA on anything. It's <laughs> always uh, the goal. And we're not struggling. We're not having a fight and these type of things. And, you know, <clears throat> I go back. The one that comes to mind is uh, BTK. Mm-hmm. Okay, So he started uh, uh, killing and uh, doing his serial killer stuff back in the 70s, right? And as this went on, and, and very similar to the question that we have, is uh, there was no rhyme or reason. Uh, there was, um, you know, there's always an MO once you start uh, seeing what they're doing, the their M.O. is the fact to do what they're doing. Right. But um, their people were random. Uh, they were stretched out. He would go years without ever uh, killing anyone or, or doing anything. So uh, I don't personally believe that a serial killer as it was back then could survive in today's technology. And again, back to BTK, that's what caught him. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the first lead that they had on BTK and, and uh, the the brief part of it is he liked to communicate with the police. He liked to, um, I don't know, harass them for better words, like you haven't Taunt caught him. me yet, right? Taunt him. And so he would hang Barbie dolls around town and he would have ligatures and things on the Barbie dolls that would resemble the victims in, right. in which he had killed. And in one particular case, he hung a Barbie doll, and it was uh, near a Home Depot. Home Mm. Depot did not exist when he started killing people back in the 70s, right? right? And the technology of video surveillance didn't exist. So in this particular case, uh, the first lead they have on BTK is him leaving a Home Depot parking lot at least the vehicle. They didn't have him. They still couldn't identify him. And, and it was way far off. I mean, like, if your camera's on the store, it's the furthest spot away driving Always by. Is. You know, so, um, you know, <laughs> that, is. that being the case, they they had a general idea of what type of vehicle it was. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that was their first lead on it. Their second lead, and actually what solved the case, I should say, and probably not their second lead, but their next big lead that solved the case was the... Uh, 
detective, the newspaper, uh, basically said that they, they would not accept his writings anymore unless they were electronic, that they had you know, moved on. And it was, it was on purpose to catch him. Of course. Him. And uh, he sent in a floppy disk. <laughs> okay? And when he sent the floppy disk in, uh, he used Word to type it. And if you're unfamiliar, when you first install Word, it asks who owns this. Okay? And every time you do anything in Word or Excel, it attaches the author or the right. owner of that document. So when he sent that in, they were able to see, uh, actually, it was not his name. It was the church in which uh, he worked at. Mm -hmm. And that brought him to the church. They saw the vehicle. They t followed the vehicle to the house. They know who now is at the <laughs> house. Dear Dennis. You know, and, and yes, yeah, so... Uh, uh, at that point, they were able to do search warrants on the house, do search warrants on the church. Uh, they found uh, trophies that he had kept of his victims. He kept them at the church in a file cabinet. Uh, you wow. know, and I remember uh, watching his interview that he had done, and uh, he he made the comment uh, uh, about, you know, how did you catch me? And they told him, you know, because of the, the Word document, because of the disk. And he said, you lied to me. You, you told me that you couldn't catch me from that. He says, well, we're trying to catch you. Of course we <laughs> lied to you. you know, so, uh, How dare you? But that being said, we think about, you know, and that was still years ago. You think about where technology is now, how many cameras are out there. Uh, so video camera surveillance. And then more importantly, it, I think, is a time frame. Uh, so an example would be most people, when they leave their house uh, in the 70s okay, uh, or in the 80s, uh, when you left at 7 a.m. for work or you left to go do your daily whatever, mm -hmm. it, no one knew where you were until 7 p.m. I mean, there were pay phones. You didn't have cell phones, right? right. So um, they knew where you were supposed to be, but if you weren't there, no one was looking for you. They didn't start looking for you till 8 p.m., 9, this is sort of unusual. Well, maybe they'll be home, but, you know, maybe stop by the grocery, day. whatever. Yeah. So there's usually was this delay, and that delay allowed uh, for these serial killers to have all that time to get away, to destroy things, to do these things. And, but now, I mean, um, you probably, you know, text, talk to, you know, your significant other, your children, your friends throughout the day, you know, and you know, their patterns. Like if they don't respond in 30 minutes, Oh, well, maybe they're in a meeting, right? right? An hour, this is unusual for them. Two hours, I'm calling them, I'm calling work. I mean, the, so the time frame has, has shrunk down. Absolutely, right? significantly. And, and certainly with, with children, which were some prime targets, uh, you know, most parents now, if you get them a cell phone, oh, you better answer that thing as soon as I'm calling. And they're like, mm -hmm. you're not, we're looking for you in 10 minutes, in 15 minutes, you know. So uh, those things have changed. Um, you know, cell phone technology, you know, and uh, we'll touch on, on a recent case uh, here in a second reference uh, uh, to Montgomery County in which cell phone technology was used. and But uh, knowing where towers are and that you mm -hmm. were communicating with that tower. And, and just so, um, so people do know, uh, if you're unfamiliar, uh, the way that you can get a phone call on your cell phone is that it's always talking to a tower. Okay? It's not just when you make a phone call. It has to know where you are at all times. So if someone dials your number, it knows where to, where send, you, that signal. Where to send that signal. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, your phone is always communicating and always knows where you are. Now, uh, once you start making a phone call, then it starts logging that information. So uh, just you driving by towers, uh, we can get that information. It's a little bit more difficult uh, because uh, it's called what basically referred to as a tower dump mm -hmm. that uh, we – it doesn't log. It, it's steadily rolling out because its only purpose was to communicate with you while you were in the area. It wasn't keeping log versus when you make a phone call – that's tied to your account. It's tied to you paying them money. I was going to say, it's because yeah. they want to get their money for that call. Right. So uh, cell phones, uh, real big. You know, now we have um, increased technology of LPRs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think probably what's most current, ring doorbells. You know, you broke into this house because they didn't have security, but the three houses around them all had security. They all had cameras and stuff. So we're, we're steadily getting information from, uh, from those avenues. You know, um, and speaking of, a cell phone. So I wanted to touch on, um, had a couple of news articles come out that uh, one most recently uh, from New York Times, uh, it actually is from uh, August 20th, um, Denmark to review 10,000 court verdicts due to errors in cell phone tracking data. And 
it's basically them uh, looking over their cases again because uh, uh, the country is director of public prosecutions on Monday, uh, also ordered a two-month halt for prosecutors with the use of cell phone data in criminal cases while the flaws and potential consequences are investigated. Now, what they found, so I want to clarify for anybody who sort of watched that story, is that they didn't find flaws with the actual cell phone providers and with the cell phone data. What they found a flaw with is that as that technology mm -hmm. advanced and, and whenever we receive those records from cell phone companies, we get an Excel spreadsheet or we get some large document okay, that shows all these towers and we show where these calls happen and this type of thing. It's a lot to manually go through okay, because one Excel spreadsheet will tell you when the calls were and it will tell you what tower it was on. Mm -hmm. Another cell, another Excel spreadsheet will tell you that tower name and what GPS coordinates located. So it, it's a lot of cross-referencing mm -hmm. and, and a lot of manpower. So they've developed programs that you can dump these spreadsheets into and it will cross-reference them for you and produce maps and produce things. That's where the problem is. Right. What they found is that this software has created some errors and produced things on the output that's an error that obviously has created some problems in their cases. Mm -hmm. But uh, just so we clarify that the cell phone technology itself is not bad. The technology is good. The data that it produces is good. It's what we do with that data. So th this particular software is the one that um, seems to be creating the problem. We've used uh, cell phone data and tracking and mm -hmm. stuff for, uh, for years. Um, Matter of fact, that was uh, uh, one of the cases that we'll talk about, and uh, it's a uh, death row case that the person was finally put to death uh, yesterday for a crime uh, from Montgomery County many years ago, 20 years ago. 1998, I believe, is when it was so, started. And uh, we won't uh, mention his name, but uh, we will mention hers. Melissa Trotter was the mm -hmm. victim. And uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, debates and things brought up here recent. Uh, as to, uh, you know, obviously, as always, whenever we go to death penalty case, there's innocence and, and whatnot. And so I want to talk about some of those technologies that had come up. And one of them was cell phones. Uh, so uh, the cell phone technology uh, and a brief history is that Melissa was at school at a local community college, uh, was kidnapped, was strangled, and left uh, dead in the woods in the National Forest. And in this particular case, um, there were cell phone records uh, that showed uh, those cell phone uh, was in the National Forest. Again, back to what we're talking, that cell phone data is good even back then mm -hmm. to show. Um, and uh, then the new data that had come up, they were talking about the pantyhose, and uh, pantyhose that uh, she was strangled with uh, was also found, uh, uh, the other half of those pantyhose were found in the suspect's house. Right. Um, and so there was an argument as to, uh, I guess it was DPS, I'm only assuming that, they said the lab, uh, was um, they have some new wording. Okay, And the new wording in their reports uh, is saying uh, basically that not to the exclusion of. Okay, And what, uh, it's in scientific terms, and what it basically, what people interpret it to mean is that, well, it could be any of them. And that's not what it means. What uh, the, to exclusion of, uh, has been sort of a, I say a new term, but it seems to be where they're going because some of the forensic sciences, the arguments that have been made is that um, we can't say that your fingerprint, okay, uh, does not match anyone in the world but you. Because, because we don't have everyone in the world's right, fingerprint. We haven't tested anybody in the world. We can't say your DNA only belongs to you because we have not tested everybody. So by that, they have made the comment that not exclusion to others. Now, uh, we totally accept this as far as the uh, DNA and the fingerprint and the fact that if I get your fingerprint and it's at a robbery and it's in Montgomery County, you live in Montgomery County, you live in Harris County, I mean, it's, you're local, it's probably most likely, and then, of course, when we get you in, we'll compare that. And, again, the argument, I think, is very far-fetched that well, no, we believe there's someone out there with the same fingerprint somewhere in the world. Right. And on this particular thing, they just happen to be in the same area as you uh, and possibly commit this crime. Well, and DNA, when the odds are four quintillion to one that it's someone else, and you try to put that person, I think when you try to localize it to one county, that number actually 
transformers exponentially greater. Right. Well, and, they, and that's how they used to word the DNA reports yes. is that uh, that variable was more than the population of the Earth, right? Right. Uh, even though we have not tested <laughs> the population of the Earth. Um, but that, that was an argument um, because that term was used. Um, the, um, they were talking about a disarray in the house being a burglary that the suspect had reported, but uh, it was not a burglary in the sense that things had gone through, were taken. It was a disarray where there was a fight, and we uh, believe this is, of course, uh, you know, where a fight occurred right. uh, leading to this. Uh, so uh, the other argument uh, was made uh, that he was in jail at the time uh, when actually he was not put in jail until three days after the disturbance, and by the time that... Uh, her body was found. It was uh, decomposed. Uh, they had brought in an entomologist, an expert, and actually one of the entomologists that we've had on the show uh, had talked in that case. And um, he had six appeals along the way, which everybody looked at. And uh, one uh, particular review that uh, uh, I hold great weight with, and that is with our DA. I have great respect uh, for uh, Brett Ligon. Absolutely. Um, I've worked many cases with him, and uh, I know his. Uh, I, I don't know the word other hesitation, I guess, than to use the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he is going to make sure uh, that everything is done properly and correctly where he truly believes without a doubt that they have done everything properly. And uh, in this case, uh, he was not the DA uh, when the case came in. Uh, he took it over and he did review it afterwards. Uh, they had uh, six different appeals. And even one of those appeals was that they wanted any DNA testing done. Um, uh, Brett Ligon offered to test it. He even offered to pay for it. Uh, Again, uh, anything outside the box uh, to do so, um, there's without a doubt in his mind, without a doubt in investigators' minds, um, anyone who's truly examined uh, the evidence um, and situation that that justice uh, was served uh, as much as it uh, does not um, you know, in those cases, in any case, um, whatever consolation that gives the family and closure to it, I'm not sure. But uh, but uh, I wanted to bring it up since we are talking about cell phone and that type of thing. And this is something recent that uh, is in a lot of articles, even mm-hmm. local here, and, and you may hear about. So, you know, we talk about some of the older cases, uh, and we always talk about cold case and referring to DNA and I was interested to see, as we've talked about a couple things in this episode in reference to fingerprints, and um, we don't really talk about fingerprints as much in cold case because we would think that, that uh, those would have been done or that would have been solved and or whatever. And that's not always the case. Uh, well, what we found, and this was um, actually uh, just about a month or two ago, uh, was a Delray uh, Beach cold case. Uh, that It's a 20-year-old murder in which uh, a lady was... Um, bludgeoned in the head um, and stabbed and the murderer had gotten away with it for 20 years until he applied for a job and part of this job application he was going for uh, required the applicant to submit their fingerprints well he had just never been in any database and uh, in this particular case and I know that not every state requires this or, or keeps these things but or allows them to check against it in this day it did so when he applied for that job uh, it checked against the known or uh, unknown evidence database, and he got a hit. And so now they found the murder 20 years later. That's so awesome. Uh, so it's something that you know we don't think about much as far as fingerprints and, and those type of things. But uh, um, obviously, just like all these databases that we've talked of putting together, you know, DNA and facial recognition and and fingerprints and and whatnot, that uh, it's not if they're in it now. You know, if they possibly get in it later and they Absolutely. show up on the crime, and that's um, you know, it's one thing that we've talked about with uh, booking procedures. Um, you know, there are some places that are taking DNA as part of their booking procedures, and uh, that that argument has already gone to the Supreme Court, uh, in which they had basically said you can change your hair color, your eye color, you can even change your fingerprints, and uh, mm-hmm. but you can't change your DNA, so it's the most identifiable thing, and so they've allowed it. But uh, it's still up to the state, and that's one of the restrictions we have here in Texas, is that we have not allowed it legislatively. Uh, So we have to put some new legislature in place 
uh, prior to us being able to uh, book people in and take their DNA at that time. And they are working on making those changes. I know uh, originally one of the problems was they had they sort of shot for the moon and said anybody booked in. Right. And uh, by doing so, that would have been anybody that you know had a public intoxication, a classy traffic, or whatever. And they said, no, that, that's a little far-reaching. So I think the latest is trying to get uh, anyone arrested for a felony, which would get most of your violent crimes, right. uh, sexual assaults, things like that. So um, I know they're working on I don't think anything was passed last legislature that would... So, and that's what I'm looking here on the phone. We just got a a notice uh, last couple of days about some changes that uh, House Bill 1399 from this last legislature. Um, And it does say that certain felony charges, the the arrestees are required to submit DNA to CODIS. And and that's under their arrest, not under conviction. Correct. That is correct. It's uh, the House Bill 1399 goes into effect September 1. Of this year, and it requires that individuals arrested for certain felony charges submit a DNA sample to DPS CODIS, and of course, then it gives a link to how to how to submit that information, this program information. So that'll be interesting, and I'll be curious to see. I know that they've sort of limited in the past to uh, child crimes, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I'll be curious. I uh, what I'm hoping will happen, where I see a future of this, and I think it'll make a big impact in law enforcement, is when we're able to uh, start having, whether it's a local DNA database, that it's not actually going to CODIS, and a lot of people have done that for things that can't go to CODIS, that uh, we're able to keep that but check our files against CODIS, that we have that person that uh, is arrested for assault, is arrested for something, uh, maybe it it is DWI, that uh, when they're drunk they do violent things, and that hits some unknown serial rapist out of another state uh, and clears those cases. And I think that that, uh, again, will start making those links together. Well, then they they actually give on the the DPS notification, they give the list of offenses. So obviously murder, capital murder, kidnapping, ag kidnapping, smuggling of persons, continuous smuggling of persons, trafficking of persons, continuous trafficking of persons. Uh, Continuous sexual abuse of a young child or children, indecency with a child, assault, sexual assault, aggravated assault, ag sexual assault, prohibited sexual contact, robbery, aggravated robbery, burglary, and theft. So we put a bunch on there. So They've included almost all felony offenses. We'll put a link of that on the website. People check out if there's listeners from out of state that y'all have different laws or different ways of addressing this, then we'd love to hear from you. If there is a question you'd like to ask or if you'd like to be on the show, if there's something that you have that – you'd like to present in reference to current or future law enforcement, forensic or crime scene issues, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach me at dan at crimescenetoday.com. And Paul, always thank you for joining me and Absolutely. going through these topics. It's always a great conversation. Thank you.